The human mind, body, emotions, and spirit are more powerful than anyone can imagine. And we will learn to utilize each of them to the maximum and learn to make decisions about what we want and how we want to feel. What a concept. And one we will explore today on the Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. On our program, we'll address who you are, why you're here on this planet, how to go within, how to come to know what you believe, and why. Now, here's your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon. We're broadcasting from beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona. And I hope you, as well as I, have really, truly survived. Uh, We survived the end of the Mayan calendar. We survived Christmas. And now we're in what I call the holiday sandwich, the week between Christmas and New Year. I I hope your Christmas was wonderful. I, I was really blessed to have my whole family here. We're a small group, and I have two sons, three grandsons, and a brother. And, you know, it was very testosterone-oriented, but it was a great time. And I hope your holidays were at everything that you expected. Um, you know, they're, they're interesting, they're good, and sometimes they're tough. You know, the winter holidays are time when most of us think of good cheer. We hear about cheer. But for many people, the holidays are a little rough around the edges, a, a difficult time. And, you know, many of the holiday traditions involve a lot of alcohol and excess of all kinds, you know, spending and eating and drinking. You know, it's a problem period for a lot of people. You know, there may be too much to do. There may be too many disappointed expectations. You know, the bottom line is that the holidays can be quite stressful and this sandwich week can be a non-stop challenge for some people especially for those who have a problem or a challenge with alcohol and we're going to talk about that today it touches many many lives our guest today dr philip hirschman is the chief clinical officer of crc health group the most comprehensive network of specialized behavioral health care services in the nation. He holds a Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of California, Irvine, and a B.A. from the University of California, San Diego. Before joining CRC, he served as Chief Executive Officer of Behavioral Health Concepts, a national mental health management company that he founded in 1993. Dr. Hirschman spent eight years with the Republic Ornda Health Corporation, where he developed and managed freestanding psychiatric and substance abuse hospitals. Prior to Republic, he served as regional vice president of operations for Horizon Health. He began his career as a clinical psychologist in Southern California, where he practiced for 10 years. In other words, he knows his stuff. Dr. Hirschman, welcome to the Self-Improvement Show. Hi, Irene. Thank you very much for having me, and happy holidays. I am absolutely delighted to have you here. The topic is so timely. But you know, before we really get into it, tell us what you do as Chief Clinical Officer for a nationwide program. Thanks for the opportunity. Somebody got a new motorcycle or something for Christmas, if you can hear that sound. (laughs) Uh, We, CRC Health Group, we're the largest provider of behavioral health services in the country. We have about 140 programs in about 30 states and are involved with the treatment of of most behavioral health disorders. Our our focus, our, our core treatment facilities are substance abuse treatment facilities both inpatient and outpatient, but we also treat uh, adolescents with a troubled youth business called Aspen Education Group. We also have uh, a couple of weight management businesses, and we treat eating disorders. In, in total, we treat about 30,000 people a day. That's a lot of people to be involved with. And what what is your responsibility? Do you write the, the protocols? Do you, you know, do any hands-on uh, practice with the, with the patients? You know, what what is your role? Yeah, good question. I, I do very little direct service nowadays. Um, but my major responsibility, I have a group of about 20 or 25 people, and we're responsible for raising the bar clinically 
across all of, all of our different programs. So we set certain national clinical standards, and then we're also responsible for checking in with our facilities on a regular and consistent basis to make sure they're meeting those standards. You must have some interesting measurement tools. I, you know, how how do you measure success in in the mental health field in, in term in terms of you know, I, I I honestly can't. I don't know. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. We try and do it a couple different ways. Um, one fairly traditional way that we're just rolling out right now is we're, we're going to start doing some longitudinal studies with our patients, you know, checking on status when they're admitted, um, status in, mostly in terms, terms of how they're living their life, what I would call functional outcomes. You know, are you winding up in emergency rooms? Are you going to jail? Are you working? Are you using drugs? You know, some those kinds of questions take a baseline on admission, and then we're going to remeasure um, patients every three months post-discharge for up to three years. So that's one way we do it. We also do some real-time measurement. turns out that a lot of the data today is, is telling us that regardless of what type of intervention you use, regardless of whether you use motivational interviewing or cognitive behavioral therapy, or you know, regardless of what the evidence-based practice is, if the strength of the relationship between the therapist and the patient is strong, you'll have a better outcome. So we're now starting to measure in real time the strength of that relationship and using that information to build the bonds and therefore generate better outcomes. Now, this is so subjective. How do you measure a relationship between a client and a therapist? We worked with a group in Philadelphia called the Treatment Research Institute, and we developed a seven-question survey. And uh, we're not the only ones to do this. I mean, we developed our own survey, but there are other ones out there. And basically, we looked at the different surveys that are out there, picked what we thought were the best questions. And the questions are things like that that, that a, uh, a patient might answer. Uh, the question might be, um, do you feel like your counselor is listening to you? Do you feel like you're making progress? Do you feel like you're working on the treatment goals that are important to you? Those kinds of questions that they would answer on a, on a five-point scale from yes a lot to no very little. And, and I'm and assuming then, if you get a lot of no very littles, you would probably change as therapist? We could. That, we could very well. We use the data in a variety of different ways. We can see where particular therapists, for example, might have trouble building that alliance, so we bring in some special training for them. Or we can see on a particular therapist's caseload, if there's a patient where the alliance isn't strong, it may in fact be that it's a mat, bad match between that patient and that counselor, and we may need to move that patient to a different counselor. And it may not be the problem on either side. They just don't mesh. Absolutely correct. Whenever anybody asks me in, in my personal life about seeing a therapist, I say go interview two or three. And the one you feel best with, that's the one you continue to see. Oh, I like that. That's good. How did you come to be interested in this field? Were you always interested in substance abuse or, you know, when you went into psychology, did you have something else in mind? You know, it's always interesting to know how you got where you are. I, I actually started as a child and adolescent psychologist. That's what my degree's in, and, and I actually taught at the university level for a year or two. Then very early in my career, like a long time ago. I don't want to tell you how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't possibly match me, but we won't go there. <laughs> uh, I had some experience with the substance abuse population and, and actually working in the criminal justice system developed a residential program for chronically convicted felons. And it turned out all of them were drug involved in some form or fashion. So that, that's kind of how I got introduced to it. And then it became a specialty because back then... There weren't a lot of PhDs or MDs that were truly involved in residential treatment. It was some of the old, just recovering models of treatment. And so I stayed, just stayed with it and got in at early's and have spent virtually my whole career touching it in, in some form or fashion. 
Well, it's it's a, a place where there really is a need for specialists because it's such a, an ongoing, hard-to-turn-around kind of program or problem, I mean. You know, how do you define alcoholism or alcohol addiction? You know, everybody seems to have their own take on exactly what it is. So if somebody, if you say somebody is an alcohol, is addicted to alcohol or is an alcoholic, what, what are the criteria you use? Yeah, it's a terrific question. And, and I think it's actually one of the more significant problems in our industry is, is that we don't use words the same way don't define them the same way, even amongst the folks within the field and have been in the field for a long way. Um, for me, I sort of uh, draw a distinction between addiction and, and risky use. So uh, addiction for me is, you know, a, a substance use disorder. It could be a, abuse um, where you're continuing to use the, the drug or alcohol in a significant way, even though it's keeping you from meeting some of your major obligations at work or at school, at home, you're using it in physically hazardous ways, it's it's creating legal problems. That would be abuse, which to me is, is, is a milder form of addiction. Then we would go into dependence, which which is true, uh, you know, more the severe end of uh, the addiction spectrum, where you see tolerance to the drugs that are being used, where if you stop using the drugs, there'll be some form of um, behavioral, physical withdrawal from it. You continue to take increasing amounts to either feel okay or to get the same high. So that's kind of my end of, of, of the addiction definition. So is the crossover point when they really can't function at work or... You know, in society without having a drink or, you know, what's, where's the turning point from, you know, just the abuse to the addiction? What's well, the, the, crossover? The, the crossover for me to, to addiction is where you're, it, it doesn't have a lot to do with the physical addiction to the medication or to the drug or the alcohol, but rather it, the use of the drug becomes so all-consuming that it gets in the way of your life on a day-to-day basis. You can't do something because you just have to have a drink now. You have to go find that next drink. You're thinking about where I'm going to get that next drink. You're ignoring your wife, your family, your job. Interesting. What about those of us who are past 50 who are advised to have a glass of wine every night or whatever because it's good for our circulation? Some people say that's a good thing. Some people say, oh, no, no, you might become an alcoholic. You know, what's your take on that one? Well, there are, you know, different people react in different ways. And um, there are, it's hard to say there are markers, but there's definitely a genetic propensity towards addiction. Um, so if, for example, y- you have that propensity for addiction, having a glass of wine every night could be very dangerous. If you don't have that prevents- propensity for addiction, having a glass of red wine every night could be very healthy. So it, it sort of depends on having a glass of red wine every night is not going to create an alcoholic or an addict. Um, but if you have that propensity for addiction, for the disease of addiction, then a glass of wine every night can be very dangerous. So it really depends on the individual. Correct. Now, we're in a holiday season, and alcohol is flowing freely in many places. Now, if you have a propensity... For, toward alcoholism or addiction, you know, how do they make it through? It's an extraordinarily difficult time. Uh, the holidays are difficult, I think, for everybody. Uh, different levels of stressors, different problems. If you are in recovery, it, it, it's a very difficult time because all of those cues that could result in cravings. There's many more of them during this period of time. Um, if if you're not in recovery, you know, it's opportunities to get into more trouble, to have more incidents because of the alcohol and drugs are flowing more freely. 
And if you're not yet an addict but have a propensity, it, it could be a time when you cross over in, into addiction. Uh, so it, it, it's just a very difficult time, I think, for all populations. And if you're not an addict, um, just the normal stressors of life make it a difficult time for many people. I think about yeah, there, are, there are times when people who don't drink will have a drink you know, on Christmas. I want to talk more about this when we come back from break, but right now we're going to take just a little time off for some commercials. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Dr. Philip Hirschman, saying stay tuned. We're going to talk about more uh, when we come back. Find out what's happening on the World Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You are tuned in to the Self Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the self improvement blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Dr. Philip Hirschman. Uh, we're talking about the holidays and alcoholism. And you might want to go to the Self-Improvement Blog. It's just that, the theselfimprovementblog.com. You'll see a picture there of Dr. Hirschman so you know uh, who's talking with us. You'll also see his bio. You'll see several articles about... Um, alcohol in the holidays about the effects of alcohol on the brain, I think is the article on today. Um, so take a look to, at the self-improvement blog and know more about who our guest is. Uh, we were talking a little bit about the, the holidays and, uh, how it's difficult for alcoholics and it's difficult for the families as well. How, what do you recommend that families do when they have a big gathering? They have a, um, family member who is an alcoholic um do you serve alcohol or don't you how do you handle these gatherings it can be a very tricky situation I, I think the biggest recommendation i could make is talk to the person um somebody that's in in a good recovery for uh, a long time has a good support system they're likely not going to mind if there's alcohol being served. Uh, somebody that's brand new in recovery may have a difficult time. So if, if my cousin is, is coming over for dinner and, and he's got three months sober, um, I want to be supportive of him in, in where he is in his recovery. So I might have a very frank discussion with him about uh, would you be comfortable if we serve wine, or would you prefer that we didn't? And and because I want to be supportive, I'll go in the direction he wants me to. And does that always work when you have a large gathering? Do you have family who gets a little uh, out of joint because they don't have their glass of wine, or you know can't have a toast um, at dinner or whatever? I mean, what do you do with those people? It's I, well, if they were friends, I I would cut them out of my system. Um, because they're not supportive. If I'm that recovering person and I, I have uh, friends who are not supportive of my recovery, I need to cut them out of my system. 
obviously that's a lot more difficult to do with family. Um, but it may mean I don't go to that party. If, right. if them having the drink is more important than them supporting my recovery, then I probably shouldn't be there. And most family understands and most family will be able to deal with it. But you do have those sticky wicket times when, you know, people get a little out of joint and then it's, it's hard for everybody. You know, what, what on earth do you do? What kind of measures can recovering alcoholics take during the holidays so they're not tempted? What can they do on their side? It's it's primarily a matter of sort of amping up what's been working for them. If they're in a, in a recovery, if they're in their recovery, they've been doing things that have that are making them successful in that recovery. It's likely to involve a support system. It may be a sponsor if they're involved in AA, but there's going to be some relationships with sober people that are, that, that are helping them. Um, they need to think ahead a lot about what might happen and be prepared. And, and again, different people are going to react differently based on their recovery and their situation. But the notion of having a support system and the notion of planning ahead, get to a party early so you don't have to be there late. You know, have a glass of ginger ale in your hand so people aren't always asking you uh, if you want a drink. Um, have some responses ready for people who offer you a drink and, and maybe you don't want to get into a long story about your recovery, but gee, I'd love to, but it gives me a migraine. You know, be prepared for those situations and have rehearsed them at least in your head so that nothing takes you by surprise. Now, do you work with your patients on these kind of things? Do you give them ideas? I'm sure you must along the way of how to deal with it when somebody just insists you have a drink. Oh, come on! You haven't. Had, you don't have a drink. You must, you really have to have something. This is really good, or whatever. Those of us who don't have problems say we get really thoughtless sometimes, and you know, urge people. I don't know why, but we do. No, it's true, and, and it happens. And a, a good part of any uh, relapse prevention treatment program, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and at the end of any kind of treatment, any kind of residential treatment, you'll you'll go through some relapse prevention training. You would go through this process of talking through these situations because they happen whether or not we're in the holidays. They're just more likely to happen with more intensity and more frequency during the holidays. Right. I know at our house, we very rarely have wine with dinner. But at Christmas, yes, we do. And we may have champagne on New Year's Eve. We may not. It's not that important. But if somebody is here and there, they have a problem with alcohol, then I need to be aware at least. And and sometimes you don't know. You you may try to shove something on somebody who says no, and you say, oh, come on, it's really good, it's the best wine there was in the store, whatever, you know, but you don't know. So, you know, will, will most of the people in your program say to a, a host or hostess, you know, I have, I have a little problem with alcohol, so, you know, if I don't drink any, please don't be offended. Will they say that to you? Yeah. That's more likely to be said later in somebody's recovery than early in somebody's recovery. You know, there, there, there is this concept around anonymity, and it makes people feel comfortable, um, especially, again, early in the recovery makes them feel generally they're more comfortable to be anonymous about what's going on, which requires them to be firmer you know, in, in being able to say no and walk away. Um, but that's an individual decision. It's, it's not one we make or recommend one way or the other. You know, we talk about recovery. Do people really, truly recover, or is this the pro- a problem they will have for the rest of their life and they have to always, always be careful? Is there a time when somebody who is recovering can have a drink? It's an absolutely great question. There are various different pathways to recovery, but what we have to ultimately remember is that addiction is a disease of the brain. It's not an issue of willpower. And there are are definitely people on the severe end of addiction 
who um, have a chronic, progressive, potentially deadly disease that where they're constantly going to have to manage that disease, the same way a diabetic always has to manage their diabetes with that chronic disease, there's definitely a subset of folks that have addiction that are going to have to manage their addiction for the rest of their life. And there are various ways to manage it, but, but we need to think of it at the severe end of addiction as a chronic disease, the same way we think of diabetes or hypertension, blood pressure. What do you say to people who say it's a moral weakness, it's an addiction, but there are people who don't see it that way? How do you deal with that? I think it's a huge problem. Um, I think it's one of the the larger problems out there because the way you perceive a disease um, has a lot to do with how you wind up treating that disease. And, and, you know, if if it's just a, a moral problem, that, that that sort of just say no concept makes a lot of sense. But you can't just say no to cancer. You can't just say no to diabetes. No, or diabetes. Exactly. And 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 so we need to the, the the data is clear. I mean, there is absolutely no question that it's a brain disease around the reward circuitry in the brain. I mean, there there is absolutely no question about that. But we we just can't get that word out there enough and and authoritatively enough for people to start to accept that it is a disease and therefore sort of alter the way we think about it and how we deal with it. And and how to deal with it is is a problem for the family. What what do you suggest to families in terms of how to deal with somebody who has a severe alcohol problem or an addiction? The to to manage that severe addiction is there's a lifestyle aspect to it, the way a diabetic has to alter the way they eat, the way an obese person has to alter the way they eat and exercise. There are, there are lifestyle management pieces to any chronic disease. And, and I think what family can be most helpful in is supporting and helping in those lifestyle management issues. If my child has a, has a type 1 diabetic, I'm not going to keep a lot of candy around the house. I'm going right. to help them manage the disease. And if they're, you know, if they're an alcoholic, you're obviously not going to have a, a lot of liquor in the house. But what do you do? What, how do you handle it when they come in drunk and they've been out of their recovery program a month or two and they come home just not able to walk or talk? How do you deal with that? Well, I, first thing we do is we try and make them safe. But it's very difficult. I, I, I am not supportive of getting angry at somebody for showing the symptom of their disease. The diabetic goes into insulin shock and winds up in the hospital. I, my, I'm, I'm going to be worried about them. I'm going to be concerned about them. I'm going to look into helping them with the treatment that's appropriate to help them with that disease. So, And when you stop treating diabetes, the symptoms occur. The same thing happens with addiction. So by showing symptoms of the disease is just more to the notion that you have the disease, that you're suffering from the disease. It's not a moral failing. It means we need to find another treatment or another type of treatment or another episode of treatment to continue to help you manage the disease. And it's time for us to go to break again. I want to, I want to go to break a little early so we can talk about treatment and really get into it. Would that be okay with you if we go to break now and then talk about treatment when we come back? Absolutely okay with me. Yeah, great. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Dr. Philip Hirschman, saying t- stay tuned. We're going to talk more about treatment of alcoholism when we come back. Find out what's happening on the World Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword World Talk Radio. 
World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You are tuned in to the Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the self improvement blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self-Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Dr. Philip Hirschman. We've been talking about uh, alcohol and the holidays and the problems that we all encounter, um, the person who is addicted in the, and the family. I want to talk about treatment. Uh, if you had, and I know it's not a one-size-fits-all, but if you had to recommend a Number one treatment plan, how would it look? What's the best approach to treating an alcohol addiction? The the best approach is really doing a high-level, detailed assessment of the individual and then tailoring the treatment to the individual. There are different levels of treatment from, you know, a sort of a low-level outpatient treatment where you might see a clinician once a week you can move into an intensive outpatient where you may see go into group therapy three times a week, uh, you know, three, four hours each time. Partial hospitalization is five days a week, um, you know, six or seven hours each day. And then residential treatment is where you actually go into a residential setting for, um, you know, detox and up to 14, 21 days of treatment depending on a variety of things. So kind of, excuse me, where you are in terms of the spectrum of severity with the disease would determine the right place for you in treatment. And, you know, this is what CRC Health Group does, isn't it? Tell us a little bit about CRC Health Group and how somebody, tell us how people would find you and how they get into a program like this. The simplest way to find us is uh, crchealth.com, our, our website, crchealth.com. And from there, you can, it's easy to get our, we have a call center and where you can call in and, and talk to experts who, who will help make recommendations about where to start the process. And that we, what we'll do is try and make an early match to either one of our facilities or if we don't have one that's appropriate to someplace that might be appropriate in your area. And, and, and get to that, sort of getting in that first door is, is, is the most difficult and most critical piece. And then once you're in that, in that first door, a good clinician, a good team will do a, a good comprehensive assessment and, and lay out a personalized treatment plan for you. And, and it could start at some level. You want to start at the least restrictive level. So you, you want to start at outpatient if you can, not at residential. And then if it works, great. If it doesn't, then you can move to a, a more acute level of treatment. So if PHP doesn't work, then you might try residential. If you're actually um, sort of at the severe end of addiction, and are physically dependent on alcohol or drug, whatever your drug of choice is, then you probably have to start at a detox level of care where you would go into a residential setting for three to five days so you can safely detox off your drug of choice. Uh, uh, give me a, a, an approximate cost 
of what it would cost you to go in for this week and, and if you needed to go into a residential treatment center for a month or so, what are the basic costs on that? It can vary somewhat dramatically based on where you go and, and the level of treatment. But a, a detox program is going to be the most expensive level of care because it's, it's a true medical level of care with physicians and nurses 24-7. And three to five days, you know, the price range could be 700 to to $1,000 a day. It, it, it can vary, can vary, you know, again, depending on where you are in the country and, and the particular facility. And then residential drops down significantly for that. Um, generally, there are third-party payers that that um, will cover residential treatment within certain limits, though there is a, a large private pay segment because coverage for the treatment of addiction is, is not nearly as good as coverage for other uh, diseases. Uh, and then, obviously, outpatient levels of care are, are substantially less expensive. Now, I notice on the net that you have treatment facilities for men and women, and you know, I looked at some of the, the offerings of those programs, and they seem to be different. Is there a different approach to treating men with addiction than women are? Or I know there's some basics that are the same, but you know, some places have yoga and some places don't, and it's just interesting to see that that they're really different. Yeah, and and, and that also will affect cost of treatment, also the different services that are offered. But there is a a trend towards gender specific programming, whether it be a facility that's gender. Specific or within a facility, there are there are gender specific groups. There's no question that there can be unique issues for males versus females or females versus males. There's absolutely no question about that. And and, and I think some aspect of the treatment uh, should be gender specific. Um, I don't think you always need a, a a dedicated facility, but I think some of the services within a program should be gender-specific, because as I, as I said earlier, there, there are definitely some unique gender issues. Can you give us a little example of what those differences might be? Well, it, they're, they're, it's just kind of the normal things you would think about when you think about the different genders. Yeah. So, you know, women might have different physical health issues than men. Men might have different kinds of cues that, that create cravings that are, you know, more, have to do with more male-specific activities. So you'd, you'd, you'd want to talk about ways to deal with those cues that create the cravings. The same for the females. They might be more female-oriented activities. Um, there's, there's probably relationship issues that you, that, that will be a part of the disease process that are easier dealt with in gender-specific groups. And women are much more emotional about the whole thing. So yeah. I'm not going to go there. No, I wouldn't touch that either. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's available for people who, who need residential treatment for a while but can't afford it? Is there any kind of program anywhere that helps people who, who can't afford to go want to but simply cannot? It, that's a, a difficult question. Um, there are many Medicaid programs um, that will cover residential treatment to a certain extent. Um, some states are better than other states, but but generally there is a benefit within within Medicaid to, to at least start the treatment process. Um, but it, as much as there, and actually most patients in treatment across the country, not necessarily in our system, but most patients in treatment across the country are covered by some form of, you know, state or federal reimbursement. Um, but even when you move away from that to, you know, to a, to a good, solid working-class population, the benefits within general health insurance coverage are weak, very weak, compared to other medical diseases. Yeah, we're way way behind in in mental health, behavioral health programs. We see that all over. We see that with the shootings that we've had. You know, we we have no mental health programs that can anticipate some of these 
things that we're seeing in our society today. What do you recommend in terms of the 12-step program? I know you use the 12-step program in some of your, your programs. A lot of people say they won't they don't like them because they're so negative. They hear the negative stuff every meeting, and there's very little positive. I've never been to one. So you know, what, is, what is your take on the 12-step program? I, I think the 12-step program is terrific, and um, they are a part of all of our treatment programs. Um, I think that 12-step is, is necessary for all treatment programs, I don't think it's sufficient. Uh, in other words, I don't think you can have just 12-step programs. Um, I think you need to have more, a whole array of treatment interventions when you're treating somebody. But but using 12-step or Alcoholics Anonymous as one of those interventions, uh, I, I think it's terrific. And not everybody's going to be interested in it, but I think it needs to be offered. And if it doesn't work for somebody, there may be some other fellowship-type organization they can get involved in. But sort of that built-in support system, I think, is uh, really important to a long-term recovery. Oh, I totally agree. The support system is just really critical. Are there any kind of medications now that can help people with alcohol addiction? There are the answer is yes, and I, and I think that's the next wave. Um, I think we're going to uh, over the next you know three to five to ten years, we're going to start to see more and more medications become available for all sorts of addictions. Um, in on, on the opiate side, I know we're talking about alcoholism, but on on the opiate addiction side, um, there have been some recent really good medications that that have come out in, that that we have been using with great success. And uh, I, that's going to be part of the treatment for addiction is going to be the use of medications, and that's going to be the trend we're going to see, one of the, I think, trends we're going to see in treatment going forward. And, and what basically do these medications do? I, they have to be able to deal with what's happening in the brain. Exactly. So if we, they, they, primarily what they try and do is deal with the cravings. So if we think of addiction as this reward circuitry, circuitry brain disease, basically what, a, what, what the drugs we abuse do is they, they make us feel really good, like eating a good pizza or, you know, having a drink of water when you're really thirsty or, or sex. I mean, they, 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 they make you feel good the same way those things make us feel good that, you know, that have always been there that propagate the species, if you will. Right. And as you continue to use the illegal drug or legal drug to, to, to get that positive feeling, you stop producing that positive feeling yourself or you become less efficient at producing that positive feeling. So the medications try to bring balance back to that and, and try and make you react less to the cues that create the cravings and bring you back into balance into finding ways to reward yourself and get that good feeling without having to use the illegal drug. Can you reach that good feeling without some kind of uh, medication support? No. Can can you reach this good feeling through um, the talk therapy, through groups, through you know? How else can you get it? It seems to me, I I, I myself. Are not, I'm not in favor of doing, using a lot of medicine. I just don't think it's always necessary, and I think we're overdrugged. But in this instance, it seems to me that there's got to be something to help you level off. You know, can you reach that place without some kind of medication? Debbie is telling us right now that some people cannot, that the change to the brain from a long-term addictive process, the, the brain does not go back to its normal state once you stop using the drug. Now, it, it does it, not. It does not. And now that's not with everybody. But, but clearly there is a subset of people where the brain does not go back to normal. And that's when you think about some kind of maintenance medication, the same way, you know, insulin to diabetes, a maintenance medication to, to an addiction. Um, 
But the, again, there's a widespread of people and how they react, and there are definitely some that going through a good treatment process um, with good evidence-based practices, they they will move back to normal. You know, it might take a year, but they will move back to normal. But again, there is a subset that it appears they will not. Let me ask you, can you see the change uh, in a brain scan when they're on medication, when they're not? You know, can, can you demonstrate a change? Um, Simple answer is yes. You, you, you can see the, sort of the brain on drugs and the brain off drugs. Um, it's not that fried egg commercial, but, but you can definitely see the addicted brain versus the non-addicted brain. And you can definitely see the addicted brain in some people get better over time, you know, move to looking more like the non-addicted brain. But again, with some people, even on the, the, you can see on the scan, the brain does not get back to that to the normal brain. And I wonder if it ever was at what we would consider that normal range. And the, the, the chicken or the egg question. Yeah. Was it yeah. ever normal? Did they always need something to get them balanced enough to feel good or safe? No, and, I, I guess and you could, you could definitely argue that there is a population that is that way because there's there's a clear genetic propensity. So you could clearly argue that they start without a normal brain. And and that has to be really hard for everybody. You know how how bad is it when you never feel good or you never feel right. safe? Uh, it's horrible. And, I, and I that's can't. What, that, that happens to a lot of addicts in that they get to a place where they need to drug the drug to feel normal. They're not taking the drug to get high, especially you see this in opiate addicts. They're not taking the opiate to get high anymore. They're taking it just to feel normal. And that's that's got to be a, a real problem. And on that note, we're going to take another break. This is Irene Connell with my guest, Dr. Philip Hirschman. We've been talking about alcoholism and alcohol addiction. We'll be right back with more, so stay tuned. We're making it easier to listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. best-selling authors, find tantalizing new books, learn the latest healthy living tips, and be inspired to coach yourself to success on Star Style. Be the star you are every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific Time on World Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You are tuned in to the Self Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1 866 613 1612. That's 1 866 613 1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the Self Improvement Blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Dr. Philip Hirschman. We've been talking about alcoholism and the holidays, and we still have some holidays to go. We're getting rid of, I guess, we're getting rid of, we're getting up to New Year's Eve, which is famous for offering drinks. We have champagne at midnight, and some people drink before midnight and all the way into the morning. So it's a a good time to talk about this subject of alcoholism and the holidays. What do you think, Dr. Hirschman, about interventions? When is it time to do an intervention? Do you think they always work? And what do you see when the person gets um, to your treatment centers, uh, let's talk a little about intervention. I think an intervention can be a very good tool, but there are definitely some considerations. 
um, probably the biggest, the, the two biggest considerations I would think about before doing an intervention is it shouldn't be the first thing you try and do. Uh, in other words, there are a number of steps about, hey, will you go see a therapist? I'm thinking the drinking's a problem. Um, what do you think? You know, there, there, there are a number of things that you should try that are softer before you get to sort of almost that last resort, which would be the intervention. The other thing I think that's critical is that you find a professional that can prepare you and lead an intervention. An, an intervention doesn't happen in isolation or out of the blue. It can take weeks of preparation before you would actually do and, and, and have a successful intervention. So having a professional involved in that is very important. And how do you find a professional that will help you do that? You have to know somebody ar- yeah. around. Uh, um, I, th- we can help you. I mean, if, if, if you you know call our national call center through the website, we can definitely help you find good interventionists. They are out there, and they do advertise, but obviously it's a, it, it's a small field of, of specialized folk, but we could definitely help you find them. On your side, what do you see when an intervention has been done and the person comes to your facility? Are they angry about the intervention? Are they usually grateful? I'm sure this is certainly not one size fits all either. But, you know, I, it seems that it, this could make some people very upset and very angry. Absolutely. And, and that's why you sort of have to be at the last resort to get to that point. And rarely do we see a person who comes in by intervention who's really happy about it. On the other hand, if they have a successful treatment episode, they're very grateful that that intervention happened. And if if they can't do an intervention, you know, what are the most important things the family can do, or how can how can the family? Deal with what they're feeling themselves and enough to help the person who has the addiction. I think that the biggest lesson here is what you alluded to, is that the family members have to take care of themselves. Uh, you can't force, uh, even in an intervention, you can't force somebody into treatment. Even an intervention isn't really forcing it. It's creating uh, options and where you're most likely to choose the treatment option. But you can't force somebody to get better, so you have to take care of yourself. And that's where something like Al-Anon or other support groups where you, where you become the focus of taking care of yourself, not fixing somebody who has a disease. Right. It's not, yeah, it's not your job to fix them. Right. Do most people who have an alcohol addiction have any idea what the impact is that they have on their family? Rarely. I mean, they're so caught up in their addiction that they actually have a relatively small world that revolves around themselves and where that next drink or, or where that next drug is going to come from. So it's a matter of taking care of yourself so that yes. you are strong enough to, to be available. You know, it would be easy, I think, to just try to shut the whole thing out. And not want to deal with them when they come in drunk. Completely agree. You need to be, I love the way you put it, be strong enough to be available. No, well, it's not easy to be available all the time because you have your own feelings to deal with and, you know, even just sometimes keeping them safe is a challenge. Absolutely true. But the best thing you can do is take care of yourself. It's just, it's such a huge problem. Talk again, you know, before we leave this show about the disease aspect, you know, the difference between it being a disease uh, process and a moral problem. I just want really to make that point. No, thank you, and I appreciate that, because I, I think that is one of the largest problems now that, for example, keeps payment you know, payment options for treatment to a minimum relative to other medical problems because not everybody, not even policymakers, 
maybe sometimes not even insurance companies, truly understand that the evidence is clear today that we're talking about a disease and that it is a, a, a chronic, potentially deadly disease, uh, disease of the brain. And that research is clear. It's irrefutable. And so we need to view addiction in that light in order to understand what's going on with those around us, our loved ones, and others that suffer from the disease so that we can provide the best level of treatment and funding for treatment that's available to treat this deadly disease. Is somebody working on getting the word out? I mean, you don't hear this. We hear all the time about breast cancer, but we don't hear about alcoholism as a disease. You know, we don't have as big a lobby as we should. No. <laughs> I'm doing my little part right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. How could people get involved with this? How do, you know, do they reach you through CRC and say, hey, I want to help? Uh, that would be terrific. They can absolutely reach me through CRC. So, I, you know, this is a, a call for help out there. A lot of people are dealing with this issue. So if you want to help and be part of the solution to the problem, Contact CRC. It's CRC.com, isn't it? CRCHealth.com. CRCHealth.com. We're getting really close to the end of the show, Dr. Hirschman. What's the final thought you'd like to leave with the listeners today? We we touched on one major major portion of it, and that is the disease concept. The other thing I would stress is that this is a treatable disease that we can help, that we can have positive outcomes as with any other chronic disease as long as that patient or client stays in treatment. Treatment works, treatment can help, and we can make a positive impact on their lives. You know, I have to think about the suffering involved in this, the suffering of the person who's addicted and the suffering of the family. And I I don't think we think enough about that, that the person who has this is really suffering. You know, they hurt. A um, tremendous amount. And as they become more aware of it, that's where they become more uh, ex- susceptible or accessible to treatment. The um, But the other part that you alluded to that could be another hour is the family aspect. And um, it is a, a family disease. It, 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 it impacts on the entire system. And any good treatment program will have a strong family treatment component to it. And, and we need to, you know, we, we need to realize that it isn't anything to be ashamed of. We're not ashamed of having diabetes. We're not ashamed of having any medical or surgical kind of problem. But alcohol addiction, we're embarrassed. We need not be. Would you say that's a true statement? I would say that's absolutely a true statement, and I appreciate you saying it. Well, I, 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 I think, you know, we, this is one of the, the diseases that's gotten hidden because of some of the shame that goes with it. Next week's guest, we will have Betsy and Warren Talbot, who sold absolutely everything they own so they can travel the world. Everything they own is in their backpacks. They've been traveling for two or three years now. They wrote the book, Getting Rid of It, and they're going to be a lot of fun. So come back and visit with us again next week. Uh, I think you'll enjoy hearing Betsy and, and Warren Talbot talk about their travels and their getting rid of it. Um, Dr. Hirschman, thank you so much for being with us today. I think we all learned a great deal about what alcoholism, alcohol addiction really is and how to help people who are dealing with it. Um, perhaps we can have you back to talk about what we do as a family to help them and help ourselves. Thanks, Irene. It's, it's, it's been terrific being on the show. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, get some of the science out there. I appreciate it. Uh, I think we need to get more out in any way we can help you here. Let me know if you have announcements you want me to make. You want articles on my blog. I have a, a wide audience for my blog. If you have an article or two you want to send my way, I'd love to put it out there. All right. Well, I appreciate that. We'll, uh, we'll see what we can do. I think that's a great idea. Great. Thank you. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Dr. Philip Hirschman, saying thank you for being with us today and come back again next week for more of the Self-Improvement Show. 
Thank you again for joining Dr. Irene Conlon for the Self-Improvement Show. Please listen again next Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Remember that improvement out there starts in here. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.